um, work, but it's more than that. It's theological. It is informative spiritually. The, God works through these scriptures to transform our lives. We believe that they are Holy Spirit inspired through Luke. The reason why Acts is such a, a good book to study is because he's writing Luke and Acts to disciple this one person, Theophilus. And so if you're ever looking in a way to go, man, I really want to know the gospel. I really want to feel like it's personal to me. Read Luke and Acts because it's written to disciple someone if you want to be discipled through the scripture. The Acts is the birth of the church age. When Christ came, died, and resurrected, it ushered in the age of the church. We are a part of the age of the church. I'll say this every single week until we are done with Acts, that you are a continuation of the book of Acts. God is still moving through his church. He is still doing his work. God is not dead in what's happening within the world and within our context. He is continually moving his church forward. And by the way, if you ever worry about the times you may be living in or the times that may be ahead of you, just remember this one thing we're going to hear all throughout Scripture is that what God sets in place, he will finish it. So when you freak out, and you worry and you think, I've heard people say this and I don't want to harp on this too much because maybe you've said it. Um, I clearly have not because I have four kids, but people have said, I don't want to bring a child into this world. I, to me, I, when I hear it, I go, I hear your worry, but it's not a statement of faith because what God has said he's going to finish, he will finish. So evil will not take over. God is always in his lane. The king, I think ultimately what we looked at last week is we looked at Stephen and his character. You know, what makes a godly person a kingdom character? And Stephen possessed them. We spoke about it last week. You can go back and listen to that. And, but this week we're moving in a different direction. This week Stephen has been placed up on trial. And he is being accused of three things. Three things that will kill you. Three charges that warrant the death sentence. Three capital crimes levied against Stephen. Two false witnesses come forward and they levy these crimes against Stephen as he's just preaching the gospel. He's serving the poor and he's serving those who are underprivileged. This is the kind of person he is. He's out preaching the gospel, especially to those who are on the outskirts of power. Those who are what we would call Hellenistic Jews. They weren't on the inside of the inside. And he's preaching the gospel at his own synagogue where his own people are hearing him. And they bring charges against him. And they want him gone. He is unjustly tried. This is a show trial that's happening. I think they got Stephen because he wasn't one of the popular ones. Do you know what I'm saying? You can't get Peter. You take him out, it's too big of a deal. And so they go after Stephen. This is an example they want to make with Stephen. And ultimately the charges are this. Number one, first and foremost, they say that Stephen is blaspheming God. That's a death sentence. They say that Stephen has spoken against Moses and the law. And they say that Stephen is speaking against the temple now. And even saying that he will destroy the temple 
Stephen is quoting Jesus and saying, hey, listen, Jesus said he would tear this temple down in three days and rebuild it, of which he did, and Stephen's representing that. But the, the, the first one, you can tell by the behavior of those accusing him, and especially about how Stephen accuses them later, that they don't really care that much that he's blaspheming God. What they do care about is him speaking, what they are, are he, hearing, he's speaking against the law by saying that Jesus fulfilled the law, and by speaking against the temple of which they are in charge of. These are the two ones that they most don't like. And so you can see the politics in what this trial is doing. Now, you have to know this. This is the third sermon, the presentation of the gospel, that this group has heard. The inner circle of the inner circle. And he's standing before the Supreme Court of that day. And this is the last chance that they get to hear the gospel in this way. And it ultimately ends this type of ministry within the city of Jerusalem and then goes out and begins to change the world. I titled this message Salvation History because what Stephen does so well in chapter 7 is he presents a beautiful, concise version of salvation history throughout the Old Testament. He connects, and if you ever have read back in the Old Testament, you go, I don't really understand it fully. This is a beautiful way to see how everything in the Old Testament is pointing to this very moment of Jesus. And it bridges the gap between what will ultimately become the New Testament as well. But I, I, I subtitled this, The Promises Fulfilled by a Faithful God. I think that many of us have experienced heartache, disappointment, and setbacks. But what Stephen lays out so well is that this God who makes his promises fulfills them. No matter what you do to stop them, and no matter what anyone else tries to do to stop them, he will fulfill them. Philippians, Paul wrote that God will finish what he started in you, this good work. And so there are many times where I've spoken with people of the church, and I myself, I've got to be honest, have been very tempted to fall into almost like a defeatist God where are you? Where I have to remember what he says in Philippians, that even though the place I may be in, God says, I will finish what I started in you, this good work. Don't worry. You have at times, I think, felt maybe lost, and you maybe have felt forgotten, and maybe you felt forsaken, but God will never leave you or forsake you. God will always finish what he starts. We just have to hang on. I think this passage, it's in Colossians, is a really good way to frame the message that Stephen's going to preach. And it's widely acknowledged, but Stephen possessed this scripture himself. Paul wrote the scripture in Colossians. Paul was here when Stephen is murdered. Paul saw what would be his prototype, I think, as he's speaking Paul saw these things embodied in what Stephen was teaching, and Paul then later writes about it. He says in Colossians 1.26, This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, and now it has been revealed to God's people, meaning that the message of the Messiah, the message of the gospel, the message of redemption through the sacrifice of Christ covering our sin 
making us right before God and in right relationship with God. It was hidden. It was in its works and eventually manifested in Jesus. So Stephen's sermon is this. In one way, if you ever want to know the meaning of the Old Testament, read Acts chapter 7 and the meaning of Christ in the Old Testament. But the other way, which I think is so brilliant about the sermon, is he is not just giving us salvation history, but he is giving a, 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 a rebuttal to the accusations, blaspheming God against Moses and the law and against the temple. He is giving them at the same time his defense of the accusation. So that's why I think it's a beautiful thing. And then he rightly presents the gospel to those who are hearing him. They just didn't like it. But I would say this, as he points, I think, to the mystery that is now in plain sight. He is pointing back in this sermon as he lays it out from Abraham to Solomon. He says, it's all been pointing to this moment. It's in plain sight. Do you see it? And many don't. I don't know if you've ever had this in your life where you've, you are at the point you're at now and you look back at the journey and at the time when you were going through stuff and maybe you're going through stuff now, but you go, I don't understand what this means, God. I don't know why this is happening, God. It doesn't make total sense, but you're asked to trust. And then I don't know why this is going on. But then if you look back and you go, oh my gosh, now I see what, do you know what I'm talking about? You all have, have to have been there. You can relate it in any way in your life, business-wise, relationship-wise, but I'm talking spiritually, where you go look back and you go, these were monumental moments, and now I see why they mattered. This is what Stephen is doing. He's saying, these were big things to all of us as a people, but the big thing we can't miss now, because they all point to this moment. He brings up five pivotal characters in his sermon. And we're just going to go one through one. I'll read most of the sermon because it's a pretty long chapter. But we're going to, it's meant to be read as one altogether. But I'm going to stop and we're going to point out some takeaways. We're going to point out some things that we can go, oh, that also relates to me today now. Oh, I see where he's going with this. Now remember his accusations. There's three of them. And you're going to hear what he is defending himself in, in his sermon. Let's say Acts chapter 7, verse 1. And the high priest said, are these things so? The three accusations. And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Now, here's the first thing he points out, is that God wasn't dwelling in a temple. Abraham didn't meet him at a sacred place. God met Abraham in the wild. And so this is first and foremost pointed out. And not even in the wild, in a place that was not even the promised land and a place that was a heathen land. That is where God met him. And I think a lot of us in the way will be, will be like, I, I can only meet God when I make my way to church and I make, meet him right here. But you, you have lost the plot here. God doesn't just dwell here at the church. God has met you a long time ago when you were at that really dark place. 
and you were asking God, like, how could you ever love me? Or God, where are you? And God's like, I'm, I'm like right here in the wild with you. And so he points this first and foremost. And I'll summarize the rest of what he says. He says that God gave Abraham a promise. And this is where it all started. At this promise with Abraham that we ultimately see manifest in Jesus. And he said, hey, God, by the way, I'm, I'm gonna, you're going to have kids too. And Abraham's like, have you seen how old I am? And he's like, no, 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 you're going to have kids. And many people, the nations will come from you. And it's almost laughable, but God gives them this promise. I don't know if you've ever had one like that. And then he has Isaac, and he has Jacob, and then Jacob has 12 kids. And if you remember, these kids turned against their brother Joseph. And so this is where the story goes. So we have Abraham, and he tells this story. Abraham was met in the wild, but he believed a promise, and he lived by faith. I think a takeaway here is that God did meet him in the wild. It didn't matter. He didn't have to be in a temple. This is where he is poking at the temple here about their worship, almost in a way unhealthy of the temple. And he, he trusts God's word and he hoped in his promise. And then faith, in spite of all of his circumstances, he chose to go where God led him. He left his family. He left his brothers. He left everybody. And then... He trusted that God was going to bring him a family and that the nations would be blessed from Abraham. This was the beginning promise. And when God made it, he fulfilled it in Jesus. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, no, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. That is faith. It's confidence in what we hope for and it's assurance that God's going to finish what he started and is going to do what he said. I remember planting the church. Chad will remember this very well. When we started, I called him. I said, I'm going to plant a church. And he was like, eh, great, great. If it's in Michigan, I'm not coming. But if it's in California, I'll join you. So then that's what we talked about. And, and some of you don't know this, is that when we started, Ann and I just said, we're just going to go and see what happens. And I do believe God met our faith. And I remember at one point our car broke down in the middle of the, the really hot desert and, and, and I just had a moment of clarity and I was thinking to myself, what am I doing? I've only raised $500 to plant a church. You should never ever take advice from Chad and I on how to plant a church. But you can take advice on how to step out in faith. I will say that, Chad. I thought about that during the message. There's one thing we can preach is we stepped out in faith. And we ended up planting our feet in Belmont Shore, and we didn't know who would be there. And God just built the church. And I can be proud of that. And I think, Chad, we can both be proud that God has built the church, and here we are today. Now, he has built the church. So I understand Abraham's call and his journey. And so this is why he first and foremost highlights that relationship by faith. Your relationship with Jesus will not come by any wonderful, beautiful act or how much you scrub yourself in the shower after you've sinned. Your relationship with Jesus is by faith. So then he goes into the next character. So we have Abraham, and then he goes into Joseph. And I, when I read this sermon, I'm like, why did you bring Joseph in? This is kind of an interesting thing. I would have thought he would have brought somebody else or maybe skip Joseph, went right to Moses. But here's how Joseph plays this role in the sermon. Acts 7, 9, and the patriarchs, right, the 12 brothers, or the, or the brothers, uh, jealous of Joseph, sold him into, into Egypt, but God was with him. Why were they jealous of Joseph? God gave Joseph a dream. 
that he was going to rule over his brothers. And this is where God was taking God's people. And just like these who were convicting Stephen now don't like where God is going with it. And they are fighting against it. And so he points out, what you're doing to me now was done back then by those who we call the patriarchs. But they did it to Joseph when he was following God's direction. And, but God was with him, and he rescued him from all his afflictions, he goes on to say, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him ruler over Egypt and all of his household. So what they tried to stop is a God that raises them to a level of which they could never have imagined. And this is how God works with his plan. No matter what man's plans are, God's plans will elevate above that. And we should always remember that. The other thing about Joseph is really interesting. Is he represents, in a way, a, a little glimpse of what the Messiah is going to look like. I think this is why he put Joseph in here. He represents a small glimmer where he was at the lowest point, crucified on a cross, but yet raises to rule all. He's in a place where he was put down and rejected by those who needed to hear the truth, but they didn't like the truth. And so they wanted to kill him. But even further on, Joseph was elevated, if you know the story, because there was a great famine and Jacob had to send his sons to go get food because Egypt became the source of all food. It's very similar to what we think about when we think about salvation. It's a good metaphor. And everyone needed to come to Egypt under Joseph to eat. And he, they saw him and he revealed himself to them. Like Jesus reveals himself to us. And then he forgave them for murdering him, trying to murder him. This is very, very close to a glimpse of what the Messiah is going to look like. Our takeaway here from Joseph in the sermon is that God's word was offensive to even the most religious at the time who had the promise. It was offensive, and he's pointing this out to those who have him on trial. And not only that, they tried to kill him because the truth landed hard on those hard hearts. They didn't like it. They wanted God to do what they wanted God to do. I know you have never done that, where you have said, God, this is the parameters of which you work, and this is the parameters of which I will worship you, and this is the parameters, and if you don't fit these parameters, therefore, I don't know if you are real. I would question that thinking if I were you, but God plans, he, they can't be stopped, and we can see it through Joseph. Oh, you want to take them down? I'm going to make it even better. His plans to save them, and Joseph really becomes this beautiful image of what it's going to look like when the Messiah comes. But what happens in the story he continues to tell, and you know the story, is that Joseph dies, the family grows, but there's a new Pharaoh who doesn't care about the agreement with Joseph and what he did, and so he enslaves all of them. And for 400 years, they're in bondage. But you got to remember, back in Abraham, God told Abraham, I'm going to raise you up a great generation, but they're going to be enslaved by your enemies. But I'm going to free them, and I'm going to bring them to worship. 
That's the crazy thing about Abraham. Imagine getting that promise from God. I'm going to give you the, all these wonderful ki kids and this great family, but it, it, tragedy is going to come. But I'm going to rescue them and bring them to me. I mean, that's a hard promise to take, but Abraham still walked it out. And so that's Joseph. I see why he brought Joseph into it, because when he was in God's plan, they still attacked him. They couldn't see what was right in front of them. And then he goes into Moses. And Moses, what happens is the population grows in Egypt. And this is why Moses is being raised up to fulfill the promise that he made to Abraham. And he is in a place now where Egypt, the Pharaoh says, you know, let's do some population control. Let's just kill all the kids. And that will kind of thin things out. And Moses is rescued. And he's raised in the palace in royalty. Look at the plan. See, do you see the re repetition of the plan? It's trying to be stopped by mankind, by power. And God then goes and brings Moses to subvert the power. This is what God does every time. But he does it in his power. And I think this is where Moses kind of gets off a little bit. And here's where he goes on to say this. In Acts 7.23... It says, when he was 40 years old, Stephen is saying, it came into his heart. I believe this is a spiritual thing happening. To visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. So now he goes and puts himself at great risk to stand up for his brothers. I think that he knew that God called him and probably placed him in this prominent position, probably, I bet probably diplomatically to do it, and then that it couldn't be done diplomatically, it has happened another way. But he, 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 uh, 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 the man impressed him in invention by striking down the Egyptian, and he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And here we go once again. Were these people, these people seeking salvation, wanting to follow God, maybe even with just their lips, but deny when God shows up. And this is what Stephen is pointing out. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling, and two of his brothers, or his, you know, uh, Israelites, quarreling, and um, tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers! Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside and said, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? We don't want to listen to you, the person God has raised up. Very similar. We're going to feel this in the Messiah. Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? So they've been some gossip. And at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. We're seeing this pattern that Stephen is trying to bring forward to these men. And I think Stephen's doing it ultimately to say, open your eyes. God is going to do what God does. Stop trying to stifle his work. God brings Moses ultimately to them, and they reject his heart. But God meets God, Moses is met in the desert by God in the wilderness 40 years later in the wild. And this is why Stephen points it out. In the wild, not in a temple, not in a holy place, 
Not the place that only God dwelt. In the wild, God met him. And then he directed him to save Egypt as one man with God. Another image of what Stephen is portraying as what Christ actually does do. Now let's read this last part of Moses. It's a little bit of longer, but let's get to the narrative here. Acts 7, 35-43. This Moses... Stephen is saying, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This, God, this man God sent to as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of an angel who appeared to him in a bush. He's saying, this person who they rejected, God actually brought him. This man led them out, of, uh, uh, led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is 100% a prophetic call to who Jesus is going to be, the Messiah. It was quoted by Peter earlier. And it goes on to say, he received living oracles that were given to us, meaning the law and the Ten Commandments. Our fathers refused to obey him, thus thrusted him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. Now, let's stop there for a second. I know us in my faith when I'm like, I would say, well, if I went through the Red Sea... And I saw a deliverance from the greatest superpower possibly the world has ever known. And I'm here out being taken care of in the desert. And I saw God lead us by a pillar of fire during the day. Or a pillar of smoke and then fire at night. And then God is resting on this mountain. And Moses has gone up to the mountain. And when he goes up there, he like is glowing. But that's not enough for me. I know we would say, but that would be enough for me. But look at, look at the people. They're missing what God is doing right in front of them. We cannot be like this. We cannot lose what God is doing right in front of us, no matter what our circumstances are. So they say to them, listen, we don't like this God. Is essentially is what they say. We need to make a God that we can actually make with our own hands, that we create, and that we can control and we can give ourselves rules from this God. They didn't like this God that delivered them. And so it goes on to say, um, And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifices to the idol and rejoiced in the work of their hands. Look what we did. God turned away and gave them over to the worship uh, the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets now he's quoting back into I think it's Isaiah did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the house of Israel you took up the tent of Moloch who is a uh, Baal the god that people sacrifice their children to they were called the Phoenicians Canaanites they were a horribly evil people who thought that if they sacrificed their children that God would help them. Moloch. They recently uncovered a tomb of 2,000 children in vases of which were sacrificed to Moloch. Just recently uncovered that. This was a horrible cult. 
And he's comparing what they did to worshiping these things that demand all of you. Why would you give yourself to that? It goes on, and he finishes up just with a little um, bit more, that they worship uh, Raphan, which is the Saturn god, and images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile to Babylon. So Stephen is quoting this, like, when you go after things that are of the earth, that are things that you can control, gods that you give yourself over to, they will demand everything from you. And this is what he's letting them know is, are we doing this with the temple? He's pointing at them. Has the temple become your idol? Is this where we're at now? That you hold God only to this because you can control it. They could never keep the law is what he's saying. They couldn't do it. They veered all the time. Listen to Matthew 5, 7 about the law. This is where Jesus refutes him speaking against the law. Jesus says, do you think that I have come to abolish the law, the law which exposes sin, which is impossible to live up to, or abolish the prophets? Oh, I have come to, not to abolish them, but I've come to fulfill them, to complete them, to make them so you're righteous before God. And so, therefore, when I look at it, I think he did a pretty good job of refuting the temple accusation and refuting his um, ill will towards Moses or misspeaking towards Moses. The takeaways here from when we look at Moses in his sermon is that he established that he does not speak against Moses, that God made a way of deliverance, but they did not obey, and that they crave these people just like maybe like themselves, and maybe we can look at ourselves, they crave to worship a God that they can combine and a God that they can define. And they missed what was right in front of them. We have to be so careful with this. We don't want to be caught into that trap of defining God in a way that's right for us to worship him, that makes him, you know, Okay, God is who he is. He will be who he wants to be. And you cannot confine him or define him. And this is what Stephen is pointing out to them. But over and over and over throughout their history, what he's pointing out to them, and this is ultimately going to get him killed, is he points out that, that when God would show up, our fathers, who we praise to the highest, they couldn't recognize the truth when it showed up. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Amos, Zechariah, all were killed because they spoke the truth. They were martyred. These great prophets. The truth showed up and it wasn't accepted or liked. So their fathers did this. Even Moses, I was reading about like, you know, a sibling dispute. Miriam and Aaron they were arguing and they were saying, man, Moses, is, he's married somebody we don't approve of. And he can't be the other one to lead. And they're starting to disagree with Moses and what he's doing and not trusting where God is leading them. And you know what they do? You know what God does? I've never seen it come to Jesus like this in the Bible before. He says, Miriam and Aaron and Moses, all three of you come here. And then... He says, what you're doing is wrong. Moses is leading. And Miriam, by the way, now you have leprosy. And it was like, what? <laughs> That's some serious discipline. Moses prayed and asked God to heal her, and he did. 
The thing is, is that when we look at Moses, and we look at Joseph, and we look at Abraham, God is moving through them for the great moment of Christ. This is why we shouldn't squander our relationship with Jesus as just a, oh, I'm just a Christian. No, 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 no. You, <laughs> all of salvation history is so that you can have Christ in your heart. And what do we do with that? The last one is this, is Solomon and David. David and Solomon, essentially. 744, this is the last part of his sermon. He says, our fathers had a tent of witness. The tent of witness meant that's where they kept the law, under the tent. In the wilderness, just as he spoke to Moses, directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Now, here's where it gets interesting. You might not know this, and I'm sure they didn't like to hear this, is that our fathers, in turn, brought it to, with Joshua when they uh, dispossessed the nations that God drove them out before our fathers, meaning that wherever they went, God, the tabernacle of, with the law, went with them, meaning that it wasn't in one place. It went with them wherever they went. And here's what he says about David. Until the days of David, when he found favor in the sight of God and he asked God, he asked to find a dwelling place for God, the God of Jacob. David feels guilty because he built a big, huge palace and he sees God meeting him in this tent and he says, God, I need to build you a temple. And, and you know what God says in return? It's partially towards Solomon. It's partially prophetic to the Messiah. He says, you're not going to build my temple. I don't need a temple. Your son is going to build a temple. But his kingdom will last forever. This is where it feels like it's heading towards Jesus. And what does Jesus do with each one of us? Temple, 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 temple. He builds the temple. David just felt guilty and wanted to build God a temple. And this probably bothered them because God is like, I go wherever I want, where I, anywhere I want. And now I have chosen to live in the temple of his people. <clears throat> and it goes on to say, but it was Solomon who built a house for him, yet the most high God does not dwell in the house made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven, he's quoting, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool, God says. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place, uh, or what is the place of my rest? Do you not... Uh, did not my hand make all these things? You can come with your best. But God's like, I made all of this. You cannot build me something that I don't already own. This is good news for all of us. This is why God dwells in our hearts. And he's with you in the darkest of places. And he's with you in the best places of your life. God is everywhere. But he chooses to dwell, have fellowship with us in his temple, our heart. I think if it's like giving, you know, like when you give, I think sometimes we're like, oh, I don't know. I'm going to give. And then I, 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 I gave God. Woo, you really, you should be thankful. And God's like, what do you mean? I already own all that. I, you gave me what is mine already. I think it's the same way that he's pointing out here about David and Solomon. So he finished his sermon right there. I think the takeaway is, is definitely God is not confined to any place. He visits the temple, but he dwells where he wants to dwell. 
and it cannot be controlled. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If you do not know that, then you need to know. Now, Paul is writing to a people who are abusing their freedom in Christ. And they are going after idolatry again. They are going after things. They are allowing their bodies to sin. And he's going, don't you even know? It's kind of like this. We live however we want, Monday through Saturday. But then Sunday, we're like, oh, whew. thank you, God. No, 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 no. You are not holy when you enter this place. You are, God is with you everywhere that you go. Don't you know that you're the temple? He closes his case. He didn't, he didn't blaspheme God. He doesn't speak against Moses. He did talk about the temple, but he broadened our understanding in the sermon about who God is and where he dwells. Right? His case is definitely sound when you read the sermon. But here's what gets him killed, is his counterclaim. And this is where truth meets a hard heart. And when God is speaking to us, we must always make sure our heart is not hard to it. And I don't know if you've ever spoken truth to someone, and I'm not talking judgment, I'm talking truth, spiritual truth. And you receive a hard heart and it might come back at you almost viciously. It just, the truth does that on a hard heart. But here's what happens, in the, and we'll finish up with this. Acts 7, 51 through 53, he finishes his, his salvation history. And then he goes into turning the table and saying, now I've got something to say to you. You stiff-necked people. This, I guess, is an ancient insult. You people who will not... Turn from your course. You uncircumcised in your heart and ear. What does circumcision mean? It means you're set apart. So you are not set apart in your seeing, in your hearing. And your heart are not set apart. This is hugely offensive to them. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. I just laid it out for you in my sermon, he said. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, of whom you now betrayed and murdered. So everything you've been waiting for, everything you've been praying for, everything you've been selling your kids, don't worry, the Messiah is coming one day. When he arrived, you executed him. This is how off track that they were. And then he goes on to say, whom you have betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels, and you did not keep it. You know what he just actually said to them? I didn't blaspheme God, you did. And they don't like this. Nobody likes a good counter-argument. But he literally turns the trial back at them. And I'll finish up with 54 and 6 through 60. Acts 7, 54 through 60. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. They were, this is a, a biblical term. It's like they're grinding their teeth like, you're a dead man. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you've never said that in traffic, but you, you have ground your teeth before. This means something bad is coming. But he, full of the spirit, gazed into heaven 
and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up. There are so many Old Testament passages you can read where one after another people, characters in the Bible, see the heavens open up. So this is a very common phrase, but what he said, what he saw when the heavens opened up was the Messiah, Jesus. And it didn't sit well with them. And the Son of Man standing at the right hand, and they cried out in a loud voice, and they stopped their ears, and they rushed together at him. They literally plugged their ears and like, la, 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 like they couldn't hear it. I remember when I tell my kids when they get frustrated with me, like, the truth, like, if you keep doing this, this is going to happen. And then some of them would literally go, I can't hear you, I can't hear you. I'm like, okay, this is not going to work. They can't hear the truth. And there are some who resist the truth. I remember as a kid growing up hating God and not liking Christians and thinking I was definitely going to be an atheist. I was very much like that. I didn't want to hear anything. I didn't want to hear a good testimony. I didn't want to hear a story. I plugged my ears essentially and ignore God. But you cannot ignore the truth. The truth will reveal you. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we're accountable for when we plug our ears like that with God. And they cast him out of the city, which is... In Leviticus, they said, this is what you do when you stone someone who is in an egregious sin. And they stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, introducing which will be the next evolution of Acts. So, the very, this is the salvation history. What, what one means to do to stop and destroy the gospel, God then raises up something greater. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, and fell on his knees and cried out in a loud voice, do not hold this sin against them. And as he said this, he fell asleep. This is very Christ-like, very much the same pattern. This was Stephen. I don't think we get enough great appreciation to who this great model of faith was. He didn't live long, but boy, did he live. He was full of faith and of the Spirit. He was courageous. He was very well versed in Scripture, and you can tell by his sermon. And he was convinced of the truth. He was convinced of it. He was full of grace, and he was empathetic towards their ignorance. This is a really good model of someone outside of Jesus that we can model our life after and walk and say, I want to let Stephen disciple me a little bit when I learn about who he is. But the funny thing is, is this moment when they killed Stephen, the promise that he referenced all the way back with Abraham, this is the moment it begins to be fulfilled, a part of that promise. Because this killing of Stephen started such a persecution and destruction amongst the church, led by Saul, who will be Paul, spread the gospel to the Gentiles, to Samaria. And that promise that Abraham was given, it came to fruition through Stephen's life being killed. I, I can't think of a more amazing person to start that cause than Stephen, especially in how he introduced Abraham into his sermon. I would say our final takeaway is this. Jesus is, 
is the promise that God gave us. If you don't see it, you've got to open your eyes. If you haven't realized, uh, the, the world repeats. You live, you can go after things that make you think you make you happy. We can worship things that we don't call idols, but really are idols. And then we can die, and we can repeat the cycle. We can chase after all these other distractions. Or we can do what Stephen did, and we can realize that the very greatest thing that ever happened to this world, that thousands of people died prior to Jesus even coming for the truth. And millions later, probably, for this truth that we all possess. Let's not be casual with it. Let's not be comfortable with it. Let's live like Stephen. Bold. Ultimately, God started the process of redemption that was lost in the garden. I think Jesus fulfilled what we can take away from this, fulfilled what we could not do through the law. It was, a, it was like lifting a burden you couldn't lift, and, and he lifted it for you. That the temple of God is wherever you are. And the truth, I think, ultimately is worth everything in this world. The, it, the lies are prevalent. But the truth is worth everything in this world. Especially the truth of the gospel. I would say this, another takeaway, is nothing can remain in God's way. It may try to block it. It may try to halt it, but God's promise is like a raging river and whatever barricade that anyone tries to set up, or even you, he will bust right through it. We must, must be like Stephen in the way we live our life. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the example of Stephen. God, I personally am grateful for this great biblical figure who embodied the belief that you gave us life and everything and it was worth dying for. And God, I just pray that you, you, we as a church and as individuals continue to increase our boldness and our passion for you. That God, like Stephen, we throw ourselves into your scripture so that when the moment is needed, we can rightfully articulate the gospel and the truth. And God, I just pray that as we walk out today, that not one of us will walk out feeling comfortable, but God, walk out feeling convicted and convinced of our faith. Like Abraham, like Joseph, like Moses, like David, like Solomon, like Stephen, and many, many more. And God, let us let go and go in your river of your plan. You will not let what you started not finish. You will do it. You will complete it. No matter what things look like around us, God, you will do it. We just trust and have faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand with me this last song?